Well, church, I am fired up to be at church, and I pray you are as well. And you got to do what I always ask you to do, and that is to turn to your neighbor at all of our campuses and say, welcome to the party. Come on. Welcome your neighbor to the party. If you're online, you can throw that in the chat. Welcome to the party. Or maybe you're at a coffee shop. Just yell it out. Maybe you'll weird the whole place out. But welcome to the party. If you're not a Christian or maybe you're new to a space like this, uh, you should know that we, we place a great deal of emphasis on celebrating, acknowledging, elevating the goodness of our God. We live in a world full of brokenness and we live in a world that comes with trials and suffering and pain, confusion, uncertainty. But the one thing that provides stability and the one thing that we've anchored our hope and our identity to is the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the goodness of our God, amen. And so we celebrate all that he is, all that he's done and all that he's promised to do in and through our lives. And so we are, we're thrilled that every single one of you would join us. And I, I gotta say, uh, coming out of At The Movies, I, I had a blast. I loved At The Movies. Show of hands, noise if you loved At The Movies. I just thought it was fantastic. That was my first time ever doing At The Movies. And I got to tell you, it was, it was a little different for me. I am a, just a traditional old school Bible teacher. And so studying movies was a, a switch uh, for me, but it was a ton of fun. And uh, I will find that Coming into a weekend now, moving forward after at the movies, everyone might need to brace themselves because I've had five weeks to just be like, I cannot wait uh, to preach. And I loved it. I was just amazed by our team and all the different departments at all of our different campuses and all the different volunteers who made five weeks of just wonderful experiences for our community. Can we just celebrate them and show our love and appreciation? Our creative team is, is next level. And uh, you know, I will say that the only challenge to at the movies was it seemed to magnify some of my insecurities. And being on that big of a screen with those high def of cameras, week one, I, I came pulling in on that motorcycle and uh, my son leans over to me and goes, Dad, don't worry about it. It's a bad filter. <laughs> and uh, I was like, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you kind of just look a little green. And I, I felt so bad for the video team because... Uh, this is all they have to work with. Homeboy is white, and if you're going to add some special effects, this complexion doesn't really set you up for much success. But nonetheless, ton of fun, and shout out to all of you who brought friends who received Christ for the first time and are now engaged in this community. And uh, I'm just excited to now jump into what God has next. Amen. And uh, I got to tell you, today we are, we are going old school. We're going to look at a passage in Scripture uh, that is out of the Old Testament. Come on, Old Testament fans, wave at me. Any Old Testament fans? I, I love talking about the Old Testament because you can tell some people, they read through the Old Testament, they're like, my goodness, some of this stuff is bone chilling. Uh, some of this stuff makes you ask the question, what kind of God are, are we serving? And you got to know this, that Scripture, the Bible, is a library of 66 books. It's not a book, it's a library. And it's written by a number of different authors spanning centuries on end from different regions and different occupations. And it's really fascinating because somehow all these individuals who never met one another uh, somehow all told the same story. And now we get to live on this side of history where we too are a part of that story. It's really fascinating. And what you need to know is in the Old Testament, everything you read, in fact, all throughout Scripture, every book, every chapter, Every sentence, it points to Jesus, it acknowledges, and it helps us understand 
Jesus in this relationship that we have with him. So when you're reading through the Old Testament, maybe you come to something like Noah and the ark, you have to ask the question, like, where would Jesus be in this story? And Jesus is the ark. Wrath and judgment come upon humanity, and it is Noah and his family that are saved in the ark from judgment. And Jesus is our ark that on the cross, he, um, well, he shields all of us who place our faith in him from wrath and judgment from a holy and righteous God. Do you see what I'm saying? You have to see it in its, in its entirety. There's this point in scripture where individuals are thrown into a fiery furnace and it says that there was another one in the fire that, hey, they were in some really tough times, but looking in, someone else was with them. And, and you start to realize we too go through some fiery times and we too find that there's always another one standing beside us, helping us get through. And who is that other one? It's Jesus, the one who stands with us in the fire. And so it's, it's learning to see Scripture in its entirety. And the passage we're going to look at today, uh, I mean, it's just beautiful as to how it nudges us towards Christ's work in our life, how it extends an invitation for you and I to be a part of his story, and how it helps us understand his work in us and and through us, and that comes to us from the book of Isaiah. Now, if you have your Bibles, you got to open up to this, but Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And check this out. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Come on, all the brides in the room who had a big train, hello, right? The, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. That's interesting details. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. You got to pause. You got to say it again. Who are we talking about? We are talking about a holy, holy, holy God. And this is an echo that you find in Scripture. Is the Lord Almighty... And the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. Ever found that God sometimes has to shake you up? I remember a conversation one time with a a mentor where we're kind of just discussing scripture. We're talking about what does it really mean to be the salt of the earth? And he talked about sitting down for a meal and how do you put salt on your meal? You grab the container and you shake it. In fact, what do we call them? Salt shakers. He says sometimes God has to shake you up to get out of you what he placed inside you. It says the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So just for awareness, it's important to know God was the first one to put a haze machine in the church, right? You don't like the idea, it's his first, right? And Isaiah says, woe to me. I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. There's only one true king of kings and Lord of lords. He says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Someone say altar. You you find this all throughout Scripture. In fact, you find altars being built and established 
in all kinds of random places. This at the front of a platform in a church space is not the only altar. That your bedroom can be an altar. Your minivan in a parking lot can be an altar. The desk within your office can be an altar. It's that place where you just say, I am I am consecrating my life to God. I am surrendering it all before him and I am making this space holy before God and I am sacrificing, surrendering, repenting and just laying it all down before my God. And I find that our lives are altered at the altar. It says he takes a piece of coal from the, the altar and with it, he touched my mouth and said, see this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. You know, which is always something interesting that I get pushback on because most people don't think a pastor would say something like this. But some of you, when it comes to reading the Bible, you're reading too much and you're reading way too fast. Sometimes we, we just breeze over things and we need to like slow down, pump the brakes, hit the pause button, rewind it, play it again, hit the pause button, rewind it, play it again so you fully understand your guilt is taken away. Run it back. Your guilt is taken away because some of you are really good at perpetuating shame. And some of you are really good at fostering self-hatred and self-deprecation. And he goes on to say, and your sin, this is huge, atoned for. And watch how it ends. It says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom? Shall I sin? See, from the beginning of time, heaven has looked upon humanity as God has decided and determined how he is going to weave his redemptive plan in and through the world. And as he does so, he, he looks upon humanity for willing and able and available individuals who say, I'll take him at his word. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. I love that. I think God is still looking for people who recognize their brokenness, nonetheless, make themselves available. God, if, if you see something in me that you could in some way use to advance the cause of Christ, well, well here I am. Send me. And anyone ever been amazed by God's ability to use broken, faulty, imperfect individuals like us? But somehow he does it. And I think he does so in a way that he gets all the glory and you and I just get to be a part of his story. This is amazing stuff. And I think when you come to scripture, you have to understand that this library is filled with different genres of literature. If you don't understand the genre, at times you will misinterpret the text. And so there's different genres all throughout it. And here would be the genres in scripture. There's the law, history, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, the gospels, and the letters. Now, when you read the book of Isaiah, which genre are we reading? Prophecy, which I think when you bring up the topic of prophecy, I think you can get two different responses. I mean, some people want to get super excited and pull out a tambourine and run across the back with a banner and start shouting things out because maybe their background is more charismatic. And so they hear prophecy and it's like a trigger of excitement for them. Where others, they hear prophecy and it just flat out weirds them out, right? Because maybe they came from a 
a tradition or a background where anything in terms of the Holy Spirit and his operation in our life was maybe poorly taught, misunderstood, or at times just seemed very bizarre. And so you have these sometimes polarizing experiences. But I think if we don't understand God's desire to, to use these dynamics in and through the body of Christ, I think we lay a lot on the table and we forfeit much of his desire in and through our life. You have to understand that prophecy is, is critical to the local church. In fact, when in the New Testament, as they're laying out how the, the church would operate, they lay out what is called the fivefold ministry of the local church. And look at this in Ephesians. It says this in chapter four. It says, he, the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the work of the saints or the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So this is really important to understand because what we've done wrong, especially within the Western world, within the American culture, is we've made church a spectator sport. When church is supposed to be a team sport, but what we did is we built platforms and we gave individuals microphones and we put cute lights and really nice cameras in the room and we made it a presentation and a production that then kind of attracts consumers, not contributors. And it becomes a spectator sport. And God was like, no, this is not about one individual other than Jesus Christ. And this is where just weird, wonky, and disgusting forms of narcissism make their way into the local church. Because if you're not careful, and my goodness, if I'm not careful, this whole operation can come with a lot of affirmation and attention of my own. And my prayer often is like, oh my goodness, God, would you please help them see past my faulty, broken humanity and just to see what is it that you are trying to say to our community? I, I, we have to understand this, that anyone who gets the opportunity, myself included, to serve within the local church is responsible for equipping the body of Christ to play their part in God's mission in the world. It's, hey, let's do this together, not, hey, come check me out. It's a huge and disgusting miss. And so here what you find is these would be the five offices. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. This is often referred to as either the five-fold ministry of the local church, or if you found yourself in a theological, uh, a theology lecture, they refer to it as the apest. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. And here's the tragedy. Over time, we have diminished this model. And it's really concerning. So many people are wired like apostles. But for the longest time, the church hasn't known what to do with people with that kind of DNA. Apostles are innovators. They're entrepreneurial. They're pioneers, they're trailblazers, they're, they're visionaries and dreamers, they're solution-minded, they see opportunity and they have the courage to go after it. And, and some of you, maybe you've operated in a church space and you've operated within the faith and you're wired like an innovator, you're wired like an entrepreneur and you're thinking like, I just don't know where I fit into this context because you've never really seen it modeled or even championed or endorsed that that type of skill set adds a lot of value to this community. We haven't known what to do with prophets because I think a lot of people have a very 
low and shallow understanding of the prophetic. And what we often think is the prophets are, are simply fortune tellers, individuals who just go around predicting the future, and we've seen a lot of manipulation happen because of that. I grew up in spaces where people just so casually just said, hey, the Lord told me, and thus saith the Lord. And I'm like, my goodness, like, that's really awesome. That's just not been my experience. A lot of times I'm, I'm operating off of impression that I get from Scripture, but these individuals, I mean, they quote God all the time, and I think you have to be careful when you operate in that mold because, well, you, you might want to get his authorization before you make a declaration. Otherwise, you fall into spiritual forgery, and you put words in God's mouth that he never said. And so what happens, we've seen this poorly taught, poorly applied, and so over time, the church just like, well, we just don't know what to do with that, so we don't know what to do with apostles, and we don't know what to do with prophets, and now, especially within our culture, we're entering the first wave of true resistance towards the local church. And what happens when a body of believers faces resistance? They turn inward. They lose the desire and the emphasis and the motivation to reach out. And so now you lose the apostles, you lose the prophets, and then you start to lose the evangelists because now it's us four and no more and we no longer look outside the door. And that's super problematic as a body of believers. And then probably the one that just breaks my heart the most is sometimes in the church world, we've, we've gotten too cute, too professional, too systematic, too corporate, that we have diminished the emphasis on shepherds. I mean, do some church history. You read the pages of history and you go throughout centuries on end and you know what you're gonna find? The thing that caused the local church to stand out wasn't our impressive productions. It was our ability to care for people. But we've, we've lost this emphasis on caretaking. We've lost the willingness and the desire to sit with people while they're suffering, to mourn with those who mourn, and to come alongside people in dark times and facing a mess. You know, we don't like messy situations. But I don't know about you, I'm, I'm thankful for a Jesus who didn't avoid my mess. And I think the church is beautiful when we step into heartbreaking situations. And so what we've only been left with is teachers, people who just explain the Bible. And I want to do a series, I'll come over here, at some point called The Apes Have Left the Building. <laughs> because I do think unless we have a full understanding of how God has designed his church, desires to see his church function, we operate beneath our capacity. And I just wonder what would happen if we as a community always just anchored ourselves not to man's vision for the church, but to God's vision for the church. How, how does God seek to work in us and, and through us? And Isaiah was a prophet. And I believe that I, uh, God desires to still use prophet-like individuals within the local church. Now, here's where we go wrong, and here's where we need to, as a community, be more sound mind in this conversation. When it comes to the prof, uh, prophetic in Scripture, there is foretelling and there is foretelling. There's a big difference. There's foretelling and there is 
foretelling. Here's one way of saying it. Forthtelling is scaling the present. Foretelling is unveiling the future. In other words, foretelling is, is saying, hey, there, there's something coming in the future that you have no frame of reference for. And you find in the book of Isaiah that there is both foretelling and foretelling. He would begin to talk about a savior of the world who would you know, pay ransom for the sins of humanity and the religious institution of the day had no frame of reference. That was a foretelling of him talking of Jesus. But much of what you read in the book of Isaiah is foretelling. It's him assessing the current culture, the current society, and calling and declaring God's word boldly in a wicked land. And what he is saying is he's scaling the present. He's saying, hey, if we don't wake up and if we don't align ourselves to God's word and if we do not look at what God is saying and we continue in this behavior, this is what it's going to produce. So a lot of times we misinterpret scripture because we read it as a threat. And in most cases, it's a warning. It's saying, hey, if you keep doing what you're doing, this will come with a snowball effect. And this builds, it's a foretelling, it's a, it's a scaling of the present. And much of Isaiah is a scaling of the present. And I find that in my heart, I feel many weekends getting up here, like my responsibility is to scale the present and to say, hey, hey folks, if we do not get serious about the word of God, and if we do not wake up and start thinking critically about the lives we're living and the communities we're building, this does have a snowball effect. And one thing that is concerning to me is because we are so immediate and we have become such a microwave culture, we've become very nearsighted in our solutions. And one thing that we're never really talking about is, hey, if we keep doing this, what does that mean for the next generation? What are we passing on to them? Yeah, this might come with instant gratification, but what does it produce for those who have to pick it up when we're gone? And I would just say this, any solution that exchanges one problem for an even bigger problem is not a good solution. And sometimes you're, you're seeing this in our culture. And so, again, to draw this distinction, foretelling is basically saying, hey, watch your step. Where foretelling is saying, hey, heads up. And I think that there is a great awakening coming to America within the local church. I just sense in my heart that God is about to do something really profound in and through our world and in and through the local church. But I am convinced that it is going to be influenced by prophets, not fortune tellers, not those so much predicting the future, but those scaling the present and those willing to stand boldly declaring the word of God despite all the landmines and the dynamics of all the tricky, complicated conversations, but just saying, I don't care what the world says. I've anchored my life to what the Lord says. And this is hard and this is challenging and this is daunting, but this is where we find true stability. This is where we find true wisdom. This is where we find wholeness. This is where true beauty makes its way into the world. Redemption makes its way into the world. And so I'm banking my life on this, amen? And I think that's challenging. And I, I think as believers, it's just, 
It's just what would happen if maybe you just traded in your casual approach to faith for more of a biblical faith, an audacious, fully surrendered, unyielding adoration for God, devotion to his cause, like, hey, I'm in. And Jesus said that he came to give life and life more abundantly. And so I wanna experience the life Jesus died to give me. And I don't wanna go through the motions in my faith. I want all that God has in mind for me. And so Isaiah, he's, he's foretelling, he's, he's really declaring the word of God in the wicked land. And his book, is, it's a big book, and it breaks down into three categories. I'm giving you a lot. This is a Bible study. But know this, the first 39 chapter, chapters, God's rebellious people craving the worldly security. That, 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 the first 39 chapters, he is addressing God's people craving worldly security. See, here's what happens in Scripture. There's this ebb and this flow with the people of God. You still see it today. Where when things are going well, the people of God get laxed. And when things are going well, you no longer have to rely on supernatural divine intervention because you can control and influence a lot of things on your own. And so what happens is, is you stop relying on God and you start looking at the world's approach to things. And you start, well, I like how they're doing it. And I like how they're doing it. And I see how they're approaching family. And I see how they're leading their business. And before you know it, you drift from this security in God to this worldly security and approach to life. And at times we have to weigh the culture we're living in with the kingdom culture that we have dual citizenship in. I know this is heady, but can you imagine if we were to really grasp what God is after? So that's the whole first 39 books. Hey, you're, you're drifting towards the world's approach. Hey, you're drifting towards the world's approach. Hey, wake up. You're drifting towards the world's approach. And sometimes when I open up the pages of scripture, I feel the same message hitting me in the face. Hey, wake up. You are drifting towards the world's approach. And then comes the next category, which the next 15 chapters, Isaiah addresses God's defeated people under worldly domination. See, here's what happens. The people of God go from being the majority to a minority. They go from having influence to now facing persecution. They go from having momentum to now facing the odds. And now they are in a season facing worldly domination. I gotta tell you, when I read these 15 chapters, I can't help but think of our current circumstance. That there's been a shift in our world and there was once a time that, that our faith was endorsed, our faith was permitted, our faith was celebrated and esteemed within this land. And folks, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but unless you've been living under a rock, that's no longer the case. To live a life for Christ isn't something that's going to always be celebrated and esteemed. It's not gonna be something that is always affirmed. And, and I'm sure there are even harder days for the local church ahead. And so Isaiah is coming to these individuals and he's saying, hey, this is how you still live faithfully, though now you are faced against worldly domination. It's a kind of a sobering thing. But he's, he's just helping them understand why are we in the situation that we're in? Well, you drifted, you drifted. And then he ends his book, the final 10 chapters, and he addresses all who hold fast to God's covenant. All throughout scripture, you find that there 
There come these seasons where there's these great fallings away and it's really heartbreaking and scripture would illustrate it in terms of wheat and chaff and the separation of the two and scripture would illustrate it in terms of like, hey, there's this scattering and then there's this regathering and the raising up of a remnant. These are patterns that you see throughout scripture and you get to the end of Isaiah and there's this, this affirmation to those who hold fast to the covenant of God and they just stay to the course and they live with faith. And at the end of the day, Isaiah's book basically breaks down to one question. Folks, which is it gonna be? Are you going to bank on self-rescue or divine grace? I mean, what's your approach to life? Are you banking on your ability to save yourself, to manage it all, and to hold your world together? Or are you banking on the divine grace that has been brought forth by Jesus Christ. And this is really important for us to just make honest assessments. Where does my confidence lie? And I'm just telling you, what you're gonna find is every single one of us is doomed if it's not for the grace of God. I mean, we're gonna fail each other, we're gonna fail ourselves, but the only one competent enough to secure our eternity is Jesus Christ. And so it's resting in divine grace. And when you get to that point where you place your faith in Jesus Christ, suddenly the burden that you've been slaving under and the yoke upon your shoulders is lifted and you start to realize his yoke is easy and his yoke is light and he does the heavy lifting. And all I have to do is stay surrendered to Christ and allow him to do the big things as if they're small things. And I just gotta stay faithful to his call upon my life. And it's amazing because Isaiah has the vision. It's really artistic. There's some details in there that I think, you know, maybe would intrigue the Bible geeks in the room. But there's this conversation and these statements that I think if you slow down and you think about them, they're really powerful statements. And the first is this. He has this vision of angelic beings around the throne of heaven. And what are they saying? Holy Holy, holy. Now, if you were to go home and I were to say, hey, write down your top 10 favorite attributes of God. You know, I think most of us would have a long list and they'd all be good, but chances are his holiness wouldn't be number one. But you just need to know if when you go through the pages of scripture, the number one attribute assigned to God is his radical holiness. He is Holy, holy, holy. It's the number one attribute affirmed in Scripture. In fact, what you find in Scripture is the use of repetition. It was their way of giving a statement an exclamation mark. Would anyone have a friend who just texts with a lot of exclamation marks? Any of you? You just feel like you're yell they're yelling at you every time they send you a text message? I'm going to the grocery store. Okay, I get it. I'm picking up bread. Get the bread, right? A lot of exclamation marks. Well, what you find in Scripture was this use of repetition, but what is unique is they would only repeat a word twice. Jesus would do this. He'd sit down to give a lesson, and he would say, truly, truly, I tell you. There's this use of repetition, but only when it comes to this does it get the third repetition. It is like a exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. He is holy, holy, 
holy. This is a big deal. What you don't find in scripture is he is loving, loving, loving. He is merciful, merciful, merciful. He is powerful, powerful, powerful. Yeah, he's all those things, but it is his holiness that is set apart. And it is amazing because who is saying this? Who is declaring with astonishment the holiness of God? Perfect, sinless, angelic beings. Think about that. These are angels, perfect and sinless beings in the presence of God, and they recognize that there is a chasm between us and this king. Yeah, we're perfect. Yeah, we're sinless. But he is holy, holy, holy. In fact, I love it because how many wings do these seraphim have? Six. And what is the purpose of a wing? To fly. And it gives us this unique detail. With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. That two-thirds of their ability they used for humility. This is interesting. They're just like, he's, he's just so great. Like, yeah, we have all this ability, but it just falters in the presence of this God. He is holy, holy, holy. There's this detail about the train of his robe, which if you've ever been at a wedding, I've had the privilege to have a courtside seat to many, and I've learned that when you officiate a wedding, you really have to think through the train of the bride. You will be trying to set up the couple's first communion, or maybe they want to do a unity candle or unity sands or unity braids. I mean, Pinterest has gone wild with these things. And so a lot of times when you're doing a wedding, you are like emceeing and being like, all right, the couple's going to go over here and do this. Now the couple's going to go over here and do this. And, and you're kind of facilitating the whole deal. And the one thing you have to always account for is homegirls train. You can't mess up the photos. So while they go over here to do the unity sand, three bridesmaids come over and they're like fluffing the thing out. And then everyone gets back in the position for the photo. And then they come over here to do their first communion. And then they're fluffing the thing out again. Nothing about the train is practical. Homegirl's at the wedding like with a sack of potatoes over her shoulder. Can't even do the Macarena because she's got to carry all this material. Nothing about it is practical. And that's the point. When a king would have a big train, it was the ultimate power statement. Because a scared king sits in armor with his sword in his hand on his throne. But a confident king, a king who handles his business, a king who is comfortable and at peace, has the biggest train because he's not worried about a thing. I don't have to run. I don't have to race. I don't have to worry. I don't have to give myself over to anxiety. I handle mine. And I love that because he's saying this train filled the entire temple. And it's as if God is saying, I am completely at peace with what I'm doing. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that though the world comes with some turbulence, the king of kings is still seated high and lifted up at peace upon his throne with the most impressive train anyone has ever seen because he's not worried about a thing because our God handles his business. Can I get an amen? amen. He's a great God. And it's in this moment that Isaiah is like, whoa, this God is amazing. And what does he say in response to himself? 
Woe to me. I am ruined. You see, we love playing the comparison game. We love comparison, comparing ourselves to crazy people around us. Right? This is why tabloids still sell. Because every time you go through the checkout, there's something about seeing us struggling celebrity that comes with a boost of confidence in your own. Oh, Britney Spears, she's crazy. I feel better about myself. This is a great tragedy, some of the slander that happens in those checkout lines. But here's the thing, something about comparing ourselves to other people's brokenness in some way fosters an unhealthy confidence. But when we compare ourselves to God, it just comes with an authenticity and a genuine acceptance of who he is and the reality of us and the depravity of our soul. And like, oh my goodness. And in this moment, he is, he's looking at the holiness of God and he's like, I'm, I'm ruined. And I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I love it. He's saying like, I, I'm trying to get my mind around this. Here I am leading these people, but... If I'm honest, I'm a mess and the people I'm leading, they're a mess and I love Isaiah because I'm like, yeah, I get it. Because I too am a mess. And the people I'm leading are a mess. Come on, you don't need me to be mean with the microphone. You already know you're crazy. You know your spouse is crazy. You know your in-laws are nuts. You know the kids you're raising got some issues. Come on, can we just, like church ought to be the most honest place on the planet. This is a community of sinners being led by sinners. That's what Isaiah is saying. Come on, we have to humble ourselves. Otherwise, we miss the mark and we start planting pride all throughout our community. And he's saying, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. What he's saying is, I can't save myself. And there's nothing in my environment that can manufacture what I need. One of the best things you can do is arrive at that place. I can't save myself. And there's nothing in my environment and the people I'm surrounded by that can manufacture what I need. And it's in this moment that the seraphim comes to Isaiah and one touch of the altar. And he says, your guilt is forgiven and your sins are atoned for immediately, unconditionally, and eternally. And some of you, you're so good at rationing out God's grace in your life because you're holding on to your shame, assuming he's holding out on his grace. And I'm telling you, one touch of the altar, one touch of God's finished work of the cross, one touch of this understanding of his grace, and immediately, eternally, and unconditionally, you are forgiven and your sins are atoned for, and you receive this pardon and this grace that only Jesus can provide. Is that not outstanding? Say, like, hey, woe to me. And God, I love it because I feel like one of the main themes in my personal life is recognizing that God is magnetic to the pathetic. It's all right, you can laugh at me, it's my story. We forget that the most profound and maybe famous hymn song is Amazing Grace. That second line is pretty, pretty honest. Amazing Grace, saved a wretch. Look at your neighbor and say, you are wretched, <laughs> right? 
Woe to me. And, and here's what's crazy. Isaiah goes from this moment of like awe and wonder with God to honest assessment of himself. And then God says, to whom shall we send? Who will go for us? God is constantly looking for the next generation and the next group of people who will rise to the occasion, who will play their part in the cause of Christ, who will partner with God in weaving his redemptive plan in and through the world. It says, who shall I send? And I love it because what does Isaiah say? He's like, hey, send me. I'll tell them about your holiness. I'll tell them about my brokenness. And I'll tell them about how you, you bridged the gap between us. I'll, I'll tell them, send me. And my, my prayer is what would happen if, if we got past the, the superficial side of our faith and we got to the raw and the gritty and just the authenticity of our faith is saying, God, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm in. Send me. This is a powerful idea. And I love it. And I think it's learning to just lean in with that possibility of just saying, hey, I, I know who my God is. I know what he's capable of doing. And I want to be a part of his mission. Because understand this, as Christians, your life's mission is an extension of Jesus's mission. So if you've given your life to Christ and you're wondering, hey, what should my life look like? It should look like Jesus. And this is where you find, folks, hear me on this, a huge difference between American religion and biblical faith. Because what has American religion done to all of us, myself included, turned us into consumers? And what happens when you and I become consumer-minded? Like all consumers, we look for good packaging and a bargain. And in doing so, we overlook Christ. On the cross, hanging naked, being executed and scoffed and mocked at, pretty bad packaging. When he says, hey, pick up your cross and follow me, that's too much of a price I'm willing to pay. That's not the bargain I'm looking for. And so we become consumers rather than contributors. But understand, every single day, we awake to the invitation that our God wants to invite us into his work within the world. Now understand this about sharing the grace of God. I can't see my slide, so I'm just gonna guess what the next one is. Yes, nailed it. If you don't know who it's from, you won't know who it's for. So when it comes to sharing the good news of grace, when it comes to telling people about Jesus Christ, if you don't know who it's from, you won't know who it's for. So who knit you together in your mother's womb? He did. The person you don't like, the person you judge, the person who you just feel is absolutely a lost cause and wicked and unrighteous, who knit them together in their mother's womb? He did. And it's not until you understand who it's from that you understand who it's for. My heavenly father, is their heavenly father. And that's my sibling, and somehow I need to share with them this news that has altered my life. In addition to that, 
If you don't know why you received it, you don't know why, you won't know why you should give it or why you should share it. So why have you and I received the grace of Jesus Christ? Because we were doomed. There's no other option, right? Like, I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. You can't save your kids. There's nothing in this world that can manufacture our salvation. Every single one of us is doomed. And I understand people are gonna be like, man, CJ is such an old school Bible thumping preacher. I I get it. This is a very narrow way of thinking about things. But I would rather walk a narrow path than a slippery slope. Our Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Nobody. And so if you don't know why you received it, because he's my only hope. So why should you share it? Because he's their only hope. That neighbor of yours, he's their only hope. That classmate of yours, he's their only hope. That wayward child, only hope. That resistant spouse, only hope. That's why. You need to just clothe yourself in humility and say, God, however you choose to use me, please send me. And lastly, if you don't know how you got it, you won't know how to give it. So how do we receive grace? Jesus Christ left perfection and entered our brokenness. Born in a manger, raised by teenage parents, living in poverty, in an undeveloped time of history in a remote region, walked humbly, lived gently, served faithfully, sacrificed radically, and paid the ultimate price. And if you don't know how we got it, you and I won't know how to give it. And so if we don't walk humbly and live gently and serve faithfully and sacrifice radically, we're not extending to the world the Jesus that offered himself to us. It's amazing. And again, we've reduced such a dynamic, robust, life-altering, fulfilling, just exhilarating journey with Christ to some product we pick up on the shelf once a week. And folks, know this. Jesus is not a product that improves your life. Jesus is a person that saves your life. And so Isaiah, he, he'd get down the road and he's, he's writing, I think he's reflecting on his own journey of all the hard times he faced trying to just tell people of the goodness of our God and all the resistance that came his way. And I think he would even foretell of Jesus who would hang with nails in his hands and nails in his feet after carrying a cross up Golgotha's hill. And he says one of my favorite Bible verses in scripture, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet. Isaiah is living in a time in history where people didn't wear shoes. 
You ever hiked a mountain barefoot? Just imagine what your feet would look like when you reached the top. Those would be some Flintstone feet. Remember Fred Flintstone who pushed his car barefoot? Those feet would have been tore up. And Isaiah's saying, yeah, but you get down the road and you get to a place that despite the scars and despite the pain and despite the uncomfortable, inconvenient journey you've walked, there's beauty in it. How beautiful are the feet? I'm telling you, the road following Christ, it's not easy, but it is worth it. And you'll get down the road and you'll see a beauty coming forth through your life of obedience that I think would just move those around you. But know this, courageous faith, it comes with calloused feet. We live in a world where socially the conversation is complicated. And the landmines that you and I have to tiptoe around just to engage with our coworkers and our neighbors and our parents on our kids' teams. This is a hard journey to walk. And it's gonna come with some calloused feet, but it's gonna be beautiful. And so I think Isaiah, who's like, hey, send me. And I think Jesus, who's like, man, I'm here to save everybody. What I love about it, Jesus would do whatever and Jesus would do whatever, whenever. And Jesus would do whatever, whenever, wherever. And Jesus would do whatever, whenever, wherever for whoever. Come on, say that with me with some confidence. Say whatever, whenever, wherever, whoever. Again, whatever, whenever, wherever, whoever. When we live with that posture, I believe we will take our community by storm. And I believe like Isaiah, all we have to do is say, Lord, Send me. Would you just send me? And that's my prayer, is that you just find yourself on mission with Christ. That in this family of believers, you just find yourself saying, I want in on what God's doing. And I wanna be a contributing member of this family within this house, amen?